Good morning. It is Palm Sunday, which means we should have sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I don't know whose decision it was not to. <laughs> Jordan, I take issue. <laughs> uh, so that's just real quick, not part of the sermon, but um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God is like my family's favorite uh, psalm or hymn. It's not a psalm. Feels like a psalm though, doesn't it? Um, Especially there at the end, we just, we like to have fun with it because my son is two years old and so you have to make everything fun, otherwise he's just not about it. And there at the end, that last line, his kingdom is forever. I try to hold out as long as I can with the forever. So we sing it, his kingdom is forever. And he loves it, it's just fantastic. But as we are remembering Palm Sunday, it is the acceptance of a coming king that is the reason that they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah, God's anointed king has come. And now he is sitting on the throne. Praise God that we get to be here and that we get to be part of his kingdom. Now, I was reminded last week that um, I'm supposed to introduce myself. <laughs> So sorry about not doing that last week. My name is Dan Beck. I serve here with the youth along with Jeff. Jeff, raise your hand. There he is. What a head of hair. I love that guy. Um, so, and a shameless plug, we are doing discipleship hour right now uh, with the youth every Sunday morning starting at 8.45, and we're going through spiritual disciplines. And one of the things that we've been going through recently um, was the Lord's Prayer, and just step-by-step step asking for what what those things mean. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What would that look like? What would it look like if God answered that prayer? And do we believe that he could? Your kingdom come. What would it look like if he answered that prayer? And so in going through this, it's just been really encouraging for those of us that have come, which is not most of you, so I say this to your shame. Youth be coming. Um, it has been incredibly encouraging to see the, the number of guarantees that Jesus makes for us regarding prayer. That if we pray according to the things that he wants, that he will answer. Ask anything in my name and the Father will give it to you. And here's one thing that we know for sure. We know that Jesus wants to build his church. We know that he wants to bring us together in unity. And that the, the fellowship that he has with the Father, he wants to bring us into that together. And so knowing that, brothers and sisters, would you pray with me and let's ask Jesus a prayer that we know that he, can, he will answer. So Father, we do come before you again. I feel like we've prayed a lot this morning, but that's, there's no such thing as too much prayer. You have said, Jesus, you have said that you will build your church. But just like the Levites reminded Joshua about the promises Moses made to them, we ask you to remember the promises that you made. Remember what you said, that you will build your church. We ask that you would come build it now. Send your spirits to open the scriptures to us so that we may understand and so that we can walk away fed with your word and understanding more about what you want from us. Lord Jesus, we love you and we ask this for the good of your church. Amen. All right, so our text this morning is Joshua 21, 
And for those of you that were here last week, you're probably thinking we don't know how to count. We do know how to count, but you know, we just need to stay a little bit longer in the land divisions, because we all love it. Um, <laughs> so, as we start in Joshua 21, the heads of the fathers of the house of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun to the heads uh, and to the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Now, if this was a movie, if we were making a movie out of Joshua, this would look like a bunch of old men walking up to Joshua and Joshua seeing them remembering, oh, these are Levites. Oh yeah, they don't have anything yet. And there would be a rewind all the way back to Exodus 32. So we're going to look at Exodus 32 real quick in movie fashion. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. We're going to be in here for a little bit. Moses, to set the scene, is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God himself. And then God says, I'm going to destroy all those people down there at the bottom of the mountain because they have made an idol. I'm done with them, Moses. You stay up here. I'm going to go wipe them out. We get an excellent prayer from Moses. Please don't. And God says, okay, I won't, but you go take care of this. So Moses is coming down the hill, and on the way, he picks up Joshua. And we will be starting here in verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory, nor the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf, the golden calf that they had made, and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them on the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, he burned it with fire, ground it into a powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. Really holding his temper there. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're evil, they're set on it. For they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, well, take off the gold that you have. And they took it off and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. They said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on each of you and go to and fro from the gate to gate through the camp 
and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. In response to the golden calf, not only does Moses say, I'll show you what I think of your stupid calf, grinds it up into a powder and makes him drink it. He also issues a command from God that some of the people of Israel be slaughtered. And the sons of Levi go and do it. This is hard. It gets worse. We'll keep reading. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. We already read that. Hold on. Uh, 29. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is the event that makes it so that Levi does not get his own section of land. But rather, the tribe of Levi now gets to be having the Lord as his portion. And he's going to get cities amongst his brethren. Levi doesn't have a section of land all to himself. Instead, the tribe of Levi by clan gets divided into the different tribes. And we're going to read this here again in Joshua 21. But this is why. This is why he gets to go and dwell in other people's lands is because on the day that Israel sinned, Levi was faithful. Because on the day that they committed a great and heinous sin on worshiping a golden calf and pretending that that was Yahweh, the one who delivered them, the tribe of Levi thought God's thoughts after him regarding sin. We look at this and we say that it's harsh, but remember, God's original solution was to kill them all. And leave Moses alone and make a great nation out of him. We're going to start over in his grace. This was the second option. To judge Israel temporarily and in a much, much smaller fashion than what he had originally intended. The tribe of Levi was blessed because of this. And now that our flashback is done, we get back to chapter 21. And before we really dig into 21, I want to remind you again of where we have come. In Joshua 13, we have the last battle that they fight. And Joshua is exceedingly advanced in age. He's old, real old. And God has commanded him to divide up the land, even though there is much land yet to be taken. And so he does. He divides up the cities by lot. They, they played a dice game where God decided every throw of the dice to show who was going to get what land and what cities were going to fall under which borders. And now he's all done. He's divided the land. And the Levites come and remind him. And he thinks back to that day when he came down the from the mountain with Moses and what the Levites did to earn their inheritance. 
so we start in verse 4. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites, those Levites who were des descendants of Aaron, the priest, and they received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, from the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. And the Merarites, according to their clan, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel, gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. They already have the cities promised to them, and instead of taking them themselves, they are now giving those to the Levites. The only thing that uh, sticks out as important there is that the son of Aaron, or the clan that would have come from Aaron, the Kohathites, those get placed in Judah, which is where the temple will eventually end up. God was planning all along. But let's read what cities they got, because this, this is the page-turner part. Starting in verse 9, out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron, one to the clans of the Kohathites who belonged to the people of Levi, since the lot fell to them first. They gave them Kirith Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields in the, of the city and its, its villages had been given to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. And to the descendants of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, Libna with its pasture lands, Jatir with its pasture lands, etc., etc. We're not actually going to read all of it. But I did want to point out, they received Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands. Almost all of the cities of refuge, which Doug did a great job explaining what that was for, almost all of them landed in the Levites' possessions. Now think through this with me. You're an Israelite. The city of refuge is there because maybe you accidentally killed somebody. Okay? You're in a tough spot already. And now you know that the only safe place that you can go is that city which is full of people that were willing to kill their own brothers because of their sin before God. All of a sudden, the city of refuge seems a lot less appealing to me. <laughs> Who better to keep watch on the holiness of their brethren than the people that are willing to think about sin the way that God does? And who better to guard against an avenger than people that have already shown that they're willing to kill their brothers if they transgress God's law? You see, I think part of the blessing for the tribe of Levi is that God wanted them to guard their brothers and their sisters. It was the only tribe that was able and willing to think of sin rightly. Go and remind your brothers. I'm going to give you cities here. I'm going to give you cities here. In every single tribe, there were Levites there. Levites that were dedicated to the service of God. Levites, as we see throughout the scriptures, the Levites were the ones who read from the book of the Torah. These were the men who were supposed to instruct Israel 
regarding God's laws and to make sure that they continue to obey them. It was a blessing from God that they were able to do this and that their portion was with God himself and that they got to be dispersed. But it was also a blessing for the people of Israel that they had brothers and sisters that were dedicated to keeping them on track. And as we read, they didn't do a great job. That's terribly sad. Because at the end of the day, the reason that Israel was judged time and time again is because the Levites were not doing what they were supposed to. The people of Israel, for sure, they were sinning. They were committing idolatry. They were worshiping the Baals and the Asherim because they didn't kill all the people that were worshiping the Baals and the Asherim. But also, the Levites weren't keeping them on track. They started off so well. We could continue to read the entire chapter, but what you would see is that in every, every tribe, they were given cities and the pasture lands around it, and that they were given the cities of refuge for the manslayer. And so I think that we can confidently skip down to verse 41, knowing that we're all going to check out if I try to read all of that. <laughs> so verse 41. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. They have everything that they need to take care of themselves. They can raise their own flocks. They can do everything that they need to amongst the people of Israel. Verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And if you'll remember from last week, we, we touched on this briefly, that there is a sense in which God already gave them everything, and they just hadn't taken it yet. It's fascinating. I, I studied with Eric this week um, because Eric had said that they did take it all under David. And I said, wait a second, I don't think that's right. And so we looked at maps together, and we compared notes, and as it turns out, they were supposed to get everything from the Nile to the Euphrates. Well, that was a big swath of land. And they never go far enough south. And they never go far enough east. They get to the Euphrates, and at one point they had a city on the port of the Nile. They got so close. And God gave it to them in a very real sense. God gave them that land. They never took it all. Now why? Why didn't they take it all? Look with me at 23. We're going we're gonna to pull a couple of verses from there again. In 23, Joshua is making his parting speech, and he is reminding the Israelites, stay focused. We're going to start in verse 11. Joshua is speaking. He says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations, remaining among them and making marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, 
know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given to you. If you turn back, God will destroy you. If you make marriages with these idolaters, God will destroy you. And just like I said last week, we can read through Judges and we can see that they did just that. And God was gracious to them by not destroying them fully. And if we read through Kings and Chronicles, we can see that God did just what he promised to. And eventually bringing an end to the nation, toppling the temple. The whole Old Testament is a story about how Israel didn't take all that God had promised. And how they disobeyed. And God kept good on his promise. So I want to read to you a little bit from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 is a really long chapter. We're not going to read all of it, but I want to give you a couple of highlights. The beginning of Deuteronomy 28 says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Skipping down to verse 15 and 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. That is a big if. See, the thing about the old covenant is that it was conditional. And I want to remind you, a covenant is a contract. There in Deuteronomy 28, they were ratifying the contract. They were signing on the dotted line. Yes, indeed, we will be your people and you will be our God. And here are the conditions of that contract. If you obey me, I will bless your socks off. I will give you all the land that I promised. And I'm going to make you a superpower in the world. If you disobey me, and if you are not careful to keep all the commands, I will destroy you. Again, this is why I think that the Levites were set among the people of Israel, was to remind them of all the commandments of the Lord, so that they could potentially go and keep all the commandments of the Lord. And if they could, then God would keep his promise. If they did keep all the commandments, which they never did, but if they did, if God would have blessed their socks off, and it would have been great. And Israel would have been God's presence on earth, and it was in some respects. Just not in the long run. And again, there in, uh, in Exodus, the Levites were God's instruments for judgment on their brothers. Because they didn't uphold their side of the if. It wasn't a good thing that Moses did throwing the tablets down, and God rebukes him for it later. But the reason he did is because before they had even really signed the covenant, they had broken it. While Moses was receiving the basic set of commands from God himself, the first three had to do with idolatry. Don't make graven images. Don't worship any god before me. Don't use my name in vain. What do they do? They make a graven image of a calf god, and they use Yahweh's name on that piece of trash. 
they had broken the covenant before it was even, like before the ink was dry, if there was ink. There wasn't ink, but you get it. The if clause is what was crippling in the old covenant because mankind is full of sin. We see uh, when the New Covenant talks about, or I'm sorry, the New Testament talks about the Old Covenant and the law, Paul is very explicit that there was a reason that the law was given. The promises of God to Abraham, if you believed in those, then the righteousness would be applied across the board, right? If you believe in Jesus to come from the Old Covenant perspective, if you believe in the promises of God regarding the Messiah, then there is safety for you. There is forgiveness of sins. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And Paul makes the argument in Romans that it's the same thing for us on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. That if we believe, it will be accounted to us as righteousness. If you have not put your faith in God yet, do it. Trust in Jesus who has risen from the dead and who will come back and judge. If faith was there the whole time, from Abraham who was before the law, then why then the law? It's a reasonable question. Paul goes on to explain in Romans that the law was given to increase trespasses. The phrase that he uses in Galatians is to make everything captive to sin. The phrase he uses in 2 Corinthians is that written on tablets of stone were ministers of death. Paul makes it pretty clear the Ten Commandments were servants of death. Because of mankind's sinfulness, because of the Jews' sinfulness, even though they were God's chosen people, they were still full of wretched sin. And what the Ten Commandments did is they showed that sin and they made them accountable to it. All peoples are sinful. And us included. And the Old Covenant seemed really great until they started to recognize, oh, I broke that command. Oh, I broke that other one. Oh, and I broke that command. I often wonder if, if there was an honest Jew, how much of their flock would have to go to the temple to be sacrificed on a weekly basis? You know, just like an honest question. Because there are 613 commands under the Old Covenant, and the vast majority of them that you can be uh, atoned for with a sacrifice require a lamb without spot or blemish. And I can't help but think that there weren't that many lambs in Israel. Now, I say that kind of jokingly, but also kind of serious. When I am aware of my own sin, recognizing that I would have to kill just so many pigeons, so many pigeons... <laughs> I don't know if there are enough pigeons. <laughs> the if clause was crippling. Oof. But praise God that that is not the only covenant. Praise God. Jesus came. And on the day before his death, he had the last supper with his disciples and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, not the old one. There's something new about this. 
He went to the cross. He shed his blood. A new covenant was established. Paul says in Galatians that Jesus became accursed for us. He took the cursings of the law because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took on all of the if you disobey me portion of the old covenant. And he gave the blessings of his righteousness because Jesus obeyed. The $5 word for this is active obedience. Because Jesus obeyed, we now can stand in him righteous. It wasn't just that he never sinned. It was that he actively obeyed all of his life. And he's made us a really generous trade. We can give him our sin and our trash, and he can give us his righteousness instead through faith in him. We already talked about the cities of refuge, but that's just such a great picture that we can go to a place that God has set up a place where people that should die can be safe. And that when the death of the high priest happens, that they can be released. And Jesus, our great high priest, as Rich had prayed about, he has died, and now he lives evermore, making intercessions for us at the right hand of God the Father. The cities of refuge are fulfilled. The high priesthood is fulfilled. There are no more sacrifices to be made because Jesus's was full and final. Don't even have to worry about the pigeon population anymore. By faith in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. So then what are we supposed to do? Knowing that, knowing that glorious truth of the gospel that we are going to celebrate Easter soon. Well, okay, then why spend so much time talking about the Levites killing their brothers? Because that was obviously unnecessary, right? I'm glad none of you said right. <laughs> it was necessary. You see, God has not changed. God's thoughts about sin are the same. In fact, in the very same book that tells us that faith has been the answer all along, talking about Romans, he also tells us that the wages of sin is death. And the Levites were just handing out paychecks. They were giving what was earned. The New Testament also talks about how we are supposed to think about sin. One of the most infuriating verses to me, which is ironic, is it Ephesians chapter 4, I think? I forget the actual reference right now. Hold on, because I'm going to misquote it. I usually do. Yep, so Ephesians chapter 4, um, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I hate that verse. Because everywhere else the New Testament talks about anger, it says to put it away, to be done with it. But the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Which when I read the story of the Levites, I'm thinking, wait a second, that was definitely the anger of man, and it looks like the righteousness of God. What gives? How am I supposed to be angry and not sin? All of my anger is sinful. 
How am I supposed to be angry and not sin? And what is this about let, not letting the sun go down on your anger? What is this about giving no opportunity to the devil? Why is that there? Turns out it's a quote from Psalm 4. This is going to be our last turning, so go ahead and flip over to Psalm 4. Right there in the middle. Starting in verse 1. To the choir master with stringed instruments, the Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that God, I'm sorry, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. In the context of the psalm, the anger is supposed to be directed towards their own sin. You see that? Be angry, do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Their anger was supposed to be directed at sins that they could offer sacrifices for. Now, I know I, this kind of feels like I'm bouncing around to a lot of different places, but there is a purpose, so stick with me and you'll see it. When Paul reminds us of this psalm in the New Covenant as part of putting on the new man, he is telling us that there is still a way to think rightly about sin under the New Covenant. It's not as though we look at the cross and say, well, it was taken care of, so whatever. That is not God's thoughts about sin. God gets angry at sin. So should we. In Paul's application, we should be getting angry at our own sin. Praise God, we do not have to put on swords and go kill sinners in our midst. Praise God. <laughs> that would be awful. It would be just. It would be awful. Rather, God gives us a different kind of instruction. Same vigor, different target. When Jesus talks about sin in the Gospels, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to go into the kingdom of heaven crippled than to go into the trash pile of hell and burn. Wall hole. There is an aspect of that which is incredibly disturbing and it was supposed to be. Don't let that go away. But also know that Jesus also taught that sin comes from within and defiles the man. It is you on the inside that is the problem of your sin. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not your hand's fault. It's not your eye's fault. It is your fault. You have sin on the inside that needs to be slain. Do you hate it? Do you hate it as much as the Levites hated the idolatry of their brothers? Are you willing to do what's necessary to kill it? Praise God again, because we can. In, in Romans 8, or, yeah, Romans 8, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being a gift to mortify our flesh. He who gave life to Jesus' lifeless body is also in your flesh, giving life to your dead body, your mortal body, he says. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to overcome sin. All of this is coming back to Joshua now. Bet you didn't think I was going to, but it is. There at the end of Joshua 21. Let me read those statements again. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they were settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them all their enemies into their hand. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. There are promises for you in the new covenant. Last week we talked about the promise of land and the promise how that developed into the promise of the entire earth for Jesus, that Jesus gets it all. There are promises for you, believer, under the new covenant. For you who have put your faith in Christ. Just like Joshua divvied up the land and the spoils and the blessings that God had given them under the old covenant and the promises to Abraham, Jesus divvies up blessings and promises to those who are with him. Isaiah says that he divides the spoil. There in Isaiah 53, he divides the spoil with the strong, with his brothers, with those who conquer. So what promises do we have under the new covenant? There's at least two that I could stand on for sure. And there are several that I think I could make a pretty good case for. But let's talk about those two. When Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant, he said that two primary things would happen. Number one, that their hearts would be sprinkled clean from sin. Under the new covenant, you are free from sin. You have been forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You no longer bear the weight of sin. That is a promise that God will fulfill. There is still much sin yet to be overcome. Just like there was much land yet to be overcome. But in the very same way that God had conquered it and was just waiting for them to take it. We are no longer slaves to sin. And God has given us everything that we need to go and conquer it. Go and conquer it. Secondly, there was the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Which, as it were, was the missing ingredient from the Old Covenant the whole time. Because men are unrighteous at their root, because we are all sinful and we know it, we could not keep the commandments of God. But through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, because God himself dwells in us because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can overcome sin. And so as you are thinking about your own sin, as you're thinking, and uh, we should be, I think that that is a healthy exercise, introspection, especially as Easter is coming, Pointing it out, naming it, recognizing that sin as sin, and knowing that it deserves the same kind of judgment that the Levites brought out on the people of, each, or, uh, the people of Israel. Knowing that that is all true, and knowing all of that punishment went to Jesus on the cross is what makes Good Friday so good. That our sin has been paid for. 
not in part, but in full. Not just what has come, not just the parts that we have done, but the parts that will come as well. Our God is good and gracious, and he forgives much because Jesus' blood was that valuable. We can walk in the spirit and overcome. It does feel a little bit uh, like a cop-out when, when I turn such an incredible story about how to deal with your brothers in sin to, well, just focus on your own. Um, that's not what the New Testament says. There is an aspect of it, and it's the only place that I can find where anger is a good thing for the Christian. You can debate me on that later if you want. Um, but we do have a responsibility when our brothers sin. And this is where it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> because we're fine when it comes to de dealing with our own sins. But now, in Galatians chapter 6, he ends with this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should go restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. Each will have to bear his own load. It is true. On judgment day, you will only have to give account for yourself. It is true, you should be most concerned about your own sin. It is also true that you have a responsibility when you see your brothers and sisters in sin. Praise God, it is not to put a sword on your thigh and go to and fro in the camp. No, rather, for those of you that are spiritual, for those of you that have taken the log out of your own eye, your responsibility is to go to your brother in the spirit of gentleness, to repair things, to bring him to repentance or her, so that you can have fellowship. It's incredible to me when we, read, um, when we read Paul's epistles, Paul can get pretty harsh about a lot of things. He talks on two occasions about handing people over to Satan. That's intense. That's intense for a minister of the gospel who believes everything that we've been talking about the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, that's really intense for him to say, yeah, we turned him over to Satan. But the reason he gives is so that he may be taught not to blaspheme. The goal is repentance. Even in the most severe judgment under the new covenant, as we are interacting with our brothers and sisters, the goal is for them to make it right with God and eventually to reconcile and make it right with their brothers and sisters. This is how God wants us to deal with sin in one another. This is fulfilling the law of Christ. There is a law for Christ. There's an old covenant law and there's a new covenant law. This is fulfilling the law of Christ, loving one another enough that you're willing to go and call each other out on sin in a gentle way so that you can bring reconciliation. So as we, as we close today, I want to remind you that Jesus, our great high priest, has fulfilled everything of the law. And so if you have Jewish blood, don't worry about it. Jesus fulfilled it. There is a new law. If you don't have Jewish blood, you were never under it in the first place. But even for you, Gentiles, us Gentiles, 
Jesus has paid it all. And all to him we owe. He has made promises that we would be forgiven of sin and that he would be with us even to the end of the age. That promise holds true. He has promised us that we would be sprinkled clean from sin and that he would give life to our mortal bodies. That holds true. He has promised that he would work all things to the good of those who love him. That is true. Look at your own sin. Know that God has dealt with it. If you have not put your faith in Christ, I would urge you to do so. There is still time to flee from the wrath to come. Brothers and sisters, would you join me in prayer? And we will close. Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans and that you did not destroy the world every time we deserved for it to be destroyed. Father, we thank you that you are keeping your promises and that because of what Jesus has done, we can trust you and we can come to you. So Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cause us to think your thoughts after you regarding sin, and that we would continue to conquer in your son. We ask this for the good of his church. Amen.